Welcome to Bold Thinking, entrepreneurial stories honestly told. In a world full of chaos, this is a podcast about the people making positive change in the world, using bold thinking to transform businesses and themselves. Today, I'm speaking to Nicola Hamilton, Director of Communications at Go Cardless, a fintech brand that's just been ranked one of the best software companies for 2021 by G2. So welcome to Nicola. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's really, really good. And um, we we had a little chat on the phone last week and it's just absolutely fascinating, um, you know, Nicola's uh, career and how she makes things happen, action-based action. So tell us a bit about your career and what you do, Nicola. Um, so, well, goodness, I've been in B2B technology marketing for far longer than I care to remember. And I'd like to say that it was something that I always wanted to do, but I kind of fell into it by mistake. I wouldn't say my, by mistake, it was just um, I was introduced uh, to an agency who specialised in um, marketing and PR for tech companies. Um, And it all started from there, really. And I kind of fell in love with the complexity of technology. I think if in my early days when I was at university and if I thought about kind of marketing and advertising and PR, you always think of B2C as being the exciting areas to work on. But what I really enjoyed was the fact that, you know, you were talking about things that were quite complex and and trying to make those simple for people. Um, And I always went by the rule of thumb that if I managed to understand it myself, then the chances were that most other people would uh, would be able to understand it as well, because I'm not actually that technology, technologically minded um, so I have to work hard to to make sure that I understand what these systems and, and everything are doing and the benefits that they bring. No, I'm absolutely totally with you on that. I think it's sometimes, you know, when we, we deal with some of the fintech companies, I'm, I have to sort of stop myself and say, look, you know, would my mum understand that? Because, it, it you know, and it's, it's not saying my mum is super intelligent, so no, no issues there, but sometimes it can be really complicated to understand. So I love that. So Nicola, what does, um, you know, bold thinking mean to you? Uh, well, it's interesting because when you invited me to come on this this show, I did kind of have a little chuckle to myself, and uh, and in in the sense that I don't I don't necessarily think of myself as a bold thinker, but I think as you mentioned earlier, the kind of the person behind the bold thinking that makes it happen. Um, you know, for, for me, the bold thinking is about those people who have that that vision, that creativity, that idea. Um, but then there's always a team of people behind that that actually bring that idea to life. And I would say that's that's where I've been um, throughout my career in terms of facilitating those ideas and quite often staring at the person who's got the bold idea as if to say, you're completely crazy. What on earth were you thinking? Um, and then having to go off and figure out how to uh, how to actually make it happen. Wow. Um, so what's been your what's been the boldest idea you've actually worked on and how have you made it happen? Because I think you're absolutely right. You can have some brilliant ideas, but if you can't deliver it, then no one, no one touches and feels it. And it's, it, it soon wisps away. Exactly. And I think, you know, the important thing I, th- I think is also, you know, because we can all all have that kind of um, blue sky thinking about ideas that are fantastic, but there has to be an air of pragmatism in terms of how can you how can you actually make this a reality? So probably the uh, the most challenging one for me um, was the rebranding work that we did 
um, for MySys and DNH when the two companies were combining. Um, and the thought, the, the thing that triggered that off was so that these two companies were being brought together. So it wasn't an, an acquisition. They were very much similar sized organizations, similar number of um, of employees. One was more predominantly in Europe and the other one was, was their footprint was bigger in the US. And the idea behind it was when we announced um, that the two companies were merging was that we didn't want it to feel like an acquisition from one side or the other. And if we'd kept one of the names or quite frankly, when you have Mysis and DNH, the combination of, of the two just didn't work well together. So um, there was a, a day when my CEO called me into the office and just kind of said, so I've been thinking and that that always then shivers down your spine when a CEO says, <laughs> says I've been thinking to a marketing person and you think, oh God, here we go. Um, and he just said, it's like, you know, so I'm thinking we, we should definitely rebrand about this and I was thinking and I was like you know what that's a great idea I'm thinking maybe six months after launch you know we could and I'm kind of with him all the way in this conversation I was like so when are you thinking he's like for when we announce and I just can't and that was the moment when I looked at him and I think my first reaction was I assume money's no object because I, going <laughs> through my mind was just, oh my goodness, how am I going to deliver this? Um, and I walked out of his office and I went back and sat at my desk and I started Googling top 10 branding companies in the UK. And I literally just picked up the phone and systematically phoned every single one to find out who were the people that I needed to speak to because I knew that I could never do this if I didn't have a team of people behind me who knew what they were doing and could help me kind of put all of that together in what was an extraordinarily short time frame, because it was actually from the date of that conversation, it was about eight weeks to when we announced the new the new company. Wow, that is amazing, isn't it? I think it's a, a few things sprang to mind then. You know, you can have these, uh, I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs and I sort of view myself as an entrepreneur having set up a, a two businesses now. But you can have these big ideas, but it's a thousand steps in, in the middle of that. And people turn around and say, oh, you know, how have you managed to make that happen? And you just look back and you think the thousand things you had to do to get to that point. And people have, some people have no idea the energy and the effort, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And that that's the thing. And I think the, the art of it is making it appear easy to everybody on the outside um, and bringing people in to, to, you know, see the results of the work that you're doing and the progress. But obviously it is like that, you know, the swan on the lake, there's that furious paddling underneath just to get everything aligned at the right time. And just to combine with that, we didn't just do the announcement and the branding. We also decided to launch it on the date when we had our global sales kickoff. So we we had about five or 600 people gathered at Disneyland Paris um, for our kind of wow. sales kickoff event. And that was when we did the big reveal of everything, the announcement went out um, and we literally turned the bright. So we had everybody in the big theatre and then when they left, so we kind of launched everything, the new brand, the new name on stage. And when they left, the events team had completely flipped everything around outside. So they just checked within the space of two hours, they just changed all the branding. So it went from being 
Mises branded all the way through to Finastra branded. Wow. So there was certain, you know, there's a certain amount of smoke and mirrors that you can do to make to give that impact. And I think it's knowing when to use that as well to uh, to really get people on board. That is an amazing story. I remember listening to a CEO of a top cosmetics company she set up herself, and she said, "This is like the biggest twelve year overnight success when she got bought out." And it was just like, (laughs) and everyone was like, where does that come from? So how do you see, you know, um, obviously Nicola, absolutely, you know, I know the team have loved working with you. How do you see this sort of like the agency value and the partnership of that? And what does that offer offer to you? Um, I mean, for, for me, that was that complete expertise because we were doing everything from not just the visual identity it was resetting um, the kind of the vision of the company going forward it was looking at the naming and obviously you know just picking a name is not an easy thing you have to make sure that you've got the url you Mm -hmm. have to make sure that it's you know you can test it in different languages we were a global company you have to make sure that it's not already been taken and let me tell you there are so many names these days that have been taken so it's just having people who'd been through that process before with other companies who understood all of the different stages that we had to go through and then really kind of dividing and conquering between us because I think the reason why you work in with an agency is to is to bring in that expertise so there's expertise that you have in-house at your company that they can't and a lot of that was just you know getting all of that the thoughts the ideas the strategy what we wanted to be as a company you know that sort of thing I could corral internally and then having a team who could really sit back and look at all that and give it a completely fresh perspective because sometimes you can be too close to something as well so having a team who's just got a different view different perspective can bring you different insight from things they've done before it is invaluable mm. particularly in that sort of project mm. and I think also I think back out you know it's also the the you know I've got so much admiration for you know people like you in, in big big businesses that manage to sort of like get through all the sort of politics and the stakeholder interviews and all that sort of stuff to make this happen at pace you know because that is a massive skill set you know you can literally keep hit, hitting buffers from an agency perspective but if you've got a client that's dynamic within a business it, you make it look like a breeze <laughs> well, I, I think there's also something kind of when you know when it comes from the top and there is that mm. desire to get something done in a short time frame actually putting everybody under pressure is a is a help whereas I think you know we could have had that six month timeline we would probably have come out with that with exactly the same result I, I really don't think it could have been any better um, we'd have just taken a lot longer procrastinating about it to be honest mm. Um, I say that with a smile on yeah. my face about the team who were involved because they were probably like a few more months would be lovely. <laughs> no, absolutely. So how you know, obviously, a lot has happened over the last year. You know, we we you know we can't you know describe the level of change everyone's been through. So how has the world of fintech had to adapt over the last year? Massive question. But you know, from your perspective, how how has it adapted? Um. I mean, first of all, it's just recognising that, you know, technology and financial technology has just been in a really fortunate position because I think in the main, as people have 
you know moved to working from home looked at how they do things kind of the whole trends in accelerator the acceleration of using digital technologies has really kind of boosted the sector so you know i do sit back and kind of count myself very fortunate for being in um in a sector that has been able to continue not completely unscathed you know go cardless um has definitely had you know so we saw some um some decreases in revenue some of our merchants were affected so you know and i think that's the same across the board but overall i think it's probably accelerated the appreciation of fintech and what it can bring whether that's on the consumer side or the business side and has given people that kind of boost if you like that reason to look at how they're doing things and maybe see if there are better ways and have a go at doing something else um so i think you know it's it's been really interesting and what we saw at the end of last year in particular we you know go cardless did a big fundraise um but so did mo- so many other companies there's a huge investment in this space not just in the uk but uh, but in europe and globally as well and i think it's it's just seeing that there are so many options now for people to be able to think differently and to do things differently um and just make their businesses more efficient and more effective and i think sometimes you know particularly when you look at smaller businesses that's a big thing because they may not be that tech savvy and it's something that's new to them so how can you help them to make it as simple as possible in terms of that transition oh i mean it's remarkable you know even a, a you know a really good friend of mine her whole you know restaurant business with you know 70 staff has had to go online and pick up parcels and you know it's been absolutely revolutionary do you think anything will go back to the way it was or we we just like we're just moving forward now is there is there no going back what and what how can we get that yeah that you know that's a really interesting question i i don't think things will go at least in in my world i don't think things will go back entirely and i think that the key i think is flexibility and i think the businesses that have you know managed to survive over the past 12 months are the ones that have just had that flexible mindset they've been able to you know shift themselves as you mentioned the restaurant um companies businesses where you know close to where I live who suddenly set up you know food delivery services um, restaurants that have switched to takeout all sorts of things I think for those people who've just been able to look at it and say okay this is a bad situation what can we do to adapt I think that kind of adaptability is you know some of them will learn from that and probably continue um, to look at doing new and innovative things and I'm saying we've got a great little cafe when I where I live and I think two weeks ago we were just walking up in the village and it was like why is there that massive queue outside and what they'd done was they started doing crepes mm, like the French mm. so they got the proper the mm. proper crepes and, and it actually you could see people queuing with their children because it was a treat and it was something different and let's face it there's not a lot different to do right now so sometimes just those small ideas can have a big impact on businesses 
Um, but I think the biggest one is just the, the shift in the way that we work. And I know there's been lots of announcements, particularly from tech companies, where obviously it's easier for people to work work from home because everything's in the cloud these days. We all have laptops. You can all access things and do your work very easily. And I think the the change of whether people will continue to work 100% from home or or go back into the office is something I, I, I'll be interested to see how it plays out. I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer. Um, and I think it will vary depending on the, the company, the culture. But I think what we'll see is more companies kind of maintaining offices, but they become more of those meeting hubs and kind of places for idea sharing and conversations. And then people will go back home to do their work. Um, that said, from somebody who is fortunate, you know, I'm fortunate and have a lovely space to work in um, at home. I think for some people who are in, you know, starting out in their careers and they live in shared houses, etc., they will want to be in the office because that's going to be better. Um, but maybe they'll do more of their work at sitting in a cafe, mm. you know, these pubs and cafes that kind of set up the little hot desking spaces as well. So I think we'll just find a lot more flexibility mm. with people around not just working hours but how they work where they work which I think is a good thing I think it's massive and I think you're right this sort of like role with change is fascinating and there's a whole thing about a resilience mindset and for me resilience mindset is about you've got core values you've got a culture but actually what you're happy to do is is adapt and roll so how you know in the world of fintech you know how do you how have you seen that adapt over last year I mean you know you amazingly well placed just to ride on the wave of something but has it had to adapt as well yes i i think so and i think it's had to adapt to um the different needs of customers because i think you know for all sorts of fintechs you'll have had so you know um business from some customers will have declined just because of the situation that they're in, whereas other sectors will have boosted and had lots of, uh, you know, lots more people wanting those services. So I think looking at how how you can, I think lots of fintechs have done good jobs of supporting the businesses who have had a hard time. And I think that for me, that whole kind of customer service and customer experience has been really, really important because, you know, just because a customer is going through a bad time now, that doesn't mean that they're not going to come back and use your services in the future. So I think where we've seen that support for people, that's, uh, you know, that's been a really, really good thing. But I think what they've also done, um, and I think maybe it's just through because a lot of the fintechs are in that kind of startup, scale up future where they've really done a great job on the employee side in terms of well-being and supporting their employees as well. Um, I think that's maybe if you think about, you know, some of the offices which, you you know, what that have the fridges full of soft drinks that have the breakfast available and those things it's almost as if that kind of culture was an easy extension to take that to people in their homes by delivering them little gift boxes helping support people and doing things in a different way so I think that's something that certainly Go Cardless have done a phenomenal job at and we've we've kind of seen that in other organizations you know similar organizations as well. I think you're totally right 
right. I mean, I've seen some amazing stories about big brands and organizations really caring about their, you know, their, um, not only their customers and their employees' well-being. And I think it sort of goes back to that thing around, you know, culture and community. And, and I'm with you. I, you know, obviously walking around, um, you know, London just today really quickly in the centre, um, you know, it's it's obviously deserted, and I and I think there's a massive lack of of um, you know we're missing community, we're missing culture, we're missing connection. You know, how do you think you know we're going to be gearing back up when we're out of lockdown in the fintech world to this sort of community culture? You know, is there going to be a big drive to get that under your values and get people back together and support that? So I think the c- community in the fintech fintech sector is hugely important and I think I think there's two aspects to it I think if you look at the fintech sector itself which um, in London there were lots of activities so there were kind of after dark events that people went to there was a football league you know for the for the people working in the sector I think there were lots of activities that people got involved in that they'd be really keen to get back to and connect but then there, there's also the side of connecting with with your customers as well and your merchants and obviously you know we've been able to move all of that online but looking at how how that will get reinvigorated in terms of events moving forward I think will be will be really interesting I think there's an underlying desire from everybody to get that connection back but obviously wanting to do it in a safe way so I think it's going to be a little bit of trial and error to see what people are willing to do as well because I don't I I think we'll see this gradual kind of moving back into things rather than a big bang of everything's back to normal which you know the um the lockdown and the way that that's eased will kind of dictate a lot of that anyway but I do think there's you know just getting that connection back in in whatever way that is preferably off a screen will be something that you know not just the fintech industry um, but every industry will be looking at doing I think it's just a particularly close-knit industry so it's maybe you know that things will start up again more than uh, potentially in in other areas just because there'll be that desire to do so from people. So how optimistic are you at the moment about the future and thriving as a business and brands so I to be honest I always look on the bright side I'm always pretty optimistic about things and I would say you know I am optimistic about the you know what will happen but I I do think there's still going to be an awful lot of change and that doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be trials and tribulations that come with it so I I think I'm optimistic long term But I think in lots of areas, there's just going to have to be a change of how people do business going forward, of what they're looking at delivering and rethinking some of those ways and and making sure that what they are offering to people is is really useful and what they need. I kind of get a sense, and maybe this is just me personally, but um, anything that's a little bit too frivolous or excessive I don't think people will necessarily be jumping back at those opportunities I think it might be a lot more of a a softly softly approach in terms of doing things that really that really stand up and make sense Mm. I totally agree with you 
Nicola, that's it's really, really great. Thank you for joining us today. Um, it was absolutely pleasure. fascinating listening to you. And I think, you know, absolutely right. The core, the core for me is, you know, you can have a brilliant, brilliantly great big idea, but actually the thousand steps and how you make it to work is just so critical. And I think I sometimes think that uh, needs to be like driven to the forefront because it's so important. So Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's also, I think one of the things is, is making sure that the people who are involved in delivering those big ideas get, and I don't mean this for, for a personal thing, but I think there are lots of people that contribute to lots of big ideas. And I think having that recognition for what they contribute is really, mm. really important. No, I agree. I think it's massively. So thanks for listening to Bold Thinking, Entrepreneurial Stories Honestly Told. You can find links to some of what we've discussed in the show's notes. And if this episode gets you thinking, share your comments and LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. Links are in the show notes or contact us at hello at thehonestbrand.com. Join me next time to hear from someone else who's making a positive change in the world. Thanks, Nicola. Really good. 